Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this evening that we have together. And just may we glorify you tonight. And remember that we're talking about arguments for the existence of God, for your existence. But help us to remember, let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so we may know how we ought to answer one answer each other. And remember what James said about being quick to listen, slow to speak. We've got two ears and one mouth. Just help us to remember that. Remember that we're dealing with people, with persons, not with a computer where we can just spit out arguments. Just help us to glorify you. In your precious name, amen. So today I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to be bringing up three arguments for the existence of God. And when I talk about arguments, I'm not talking about quarrels or fights. A true philosopher uses arguments to find truth, not to fight. We're not, in, we're not intellectually cage-fighting with people. We're not trying to make people tap out. We're not bullying people into the kingdom of heaven. We're using arguments to find truth. And when I say arguments, we're not looking for 100% certainty. We're giving statements that, show, that try to show something is more plausible than the contrary, than its negation. So a basic philosophical argument goes this way. This is for my four-year-old daughter. All big girls stay up late. That's premise one. Premise two. I'm a big girl. Premise three. Therefore, I get to stay up late. That's a philosophical argument for my four-year-old daughter, soon to be five. Now, why do I bring up philosophy? Why am I talking about philosophical argumentation? Well, philosophy has been used through the history of the church, mainly for polemics, for, for going against heresies that are infiltrating the church. For instance, you had Arianism, which is trying to deny the divinity of Christ, and so they came up and they formulated the doctrine of the Trinity. If you don't have any kind of philosophical background, it becomes even more confusing than it already is. Because we've got to understand, in philosophy, there's a study of ontology. There's the study of being. So God is one being. But then there's persons. There's three persons. So the study of ontology tells us there's actually a difference between being and person. There's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not a contradiction. Or they had a fight against Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this, there, there was a lot of beliefs that came out of Gnosticism, but one of the big ones was they got this idea from Plato that the material world is bad. Material is evil, but spiritual is good. So they would go to the extreme of saying, if I had sex with a temple prostitute, it wasn't me that was doing it, it was my body, because my spiritual side is just trying to break away from this evil body. So the Christians had a combat against Gnosticism. Christians now use it in missions. If, if a Christian missionary is over in India, they have to understand what kind of worldview is being, what kind of main worldview is in India. There was a, a, a guy, Charles Malik. He spoke at Billy Graham's, the opening of his, the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton College, this was back in 1980. He was a Lebanese diplomat, and he was an Eastern Orthodox Christian. 
And he said, the name of the speech was Two Tasks. The first task was an obvious one for the American evangelical. The first task was to save the soul. The second task, which was surprising, was to save the mind. Out of the philosophical foundations for the Christian worldview by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, they talk about empty selves in the church. This is what they say. Our churches are unfortunately overpopulated with people whose minds as Christians are going to waste. As Charles Malik observed, they may be spiritually regenerate, but their minds have not been converted. They still think like non-believers. Despite their Christian commitment, they remain largely empty selves. What is an empty self? An empty self is a person who is passive, sensate, busy, and hurried, incapable of developing an interior life. Such a person is inordinately individualistic, infantile, and narcissistic. Imagine now a church filled with such people. What will be the theological understanding, the evangelistic courage, the cultural penetration of such a church? If the interior life does not really matter all that much, why should one spend the time trying to develop an intellectual, spiritually mature life? If someone is basically passive, he will just not make the effort to read preferring instead to be entertained. If a person is sensate in orientation, then music, magazines filled with pictures, and visual media in general will be more important than mere words on a page or abstract thoughts. If one is hurried and distracted, one will have little patience for theoretical knowledge and too short an attention span to stay with an idea while it is being carefully developed. And if someone is overly individualistic, infantile, and narcissistic, what will... That person read if he reads at all. Books about Christian celebrities, Christian romance novels, imitating the worst the world has to offer. Christian self-help books filled with slogans, simplistic moralizing, lots of stories and pictures, an inadequate diagnosis of the problem facing the reader. What will not be be read are books that equip people to develop a well-reasoned theological understanding of the Christian faith and to assume their role in the broader work of the kingdom of God. Such a church will become impotent to stand against the powerful forces of secularism that threaten to wash away Christian ideas in a flood of thoughtless pluralism and misguided scientism. Such a church will be tempted to measure her success largely in terms of numbers achieved by cultural accommodation to empty selves. In this way, the church will become her own gravedigger, for her means of short-term success will turn out in the long run to be the very thing that buries her. Charles Malik said that the biggest threat to American evangelicalism is anti-intellectualism. C.S. Lewis put it well in The Weight of Glory. He says, To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. I'm going to present three arguments tonight. The moral argument, the cosmological argument, and the teleological or the fine-tuning of the universe argument. The first argument, the, the moral argument, it, it answers the questions, what is the basis of our values? Is it social conventions? 
Is it personal preference? Is it evolution? Or is it God? The moral argument for the existence of God goes this way. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. When we talk about values and duties, we're talking about something a little bit different. Values have to do with a person or an action's worth. So when we say, when Christians say man is made in the image of God, we're talking about a value, the worth of a person. We, we think in the terms of good or bad. When we talk about duties, we talk about what ought and ought not to be done. Is an action right or wrong? When we talk about objective, we talk about morals that transcend, that are independent of a person or a society's beliefs on the subject. Subjective is dependent on human opinion. Objective is independent of human opinion. So an example of subjective is Papa John's came out with a double cheeseburger pizza. I'm like, we need to get this, babe. We need, well, this looks awesome. We've got to get it. So we get the double cheeseburger pizza, and, it, and I'm eating it. I'm grubbing. I'm eating. I probably got food on my face, and I'm just, I'm just picking out. And I look over at Amanda, and I'm like, this is awesome, isn't it? And she says, yeah, it's all right. And woman talk, that is, this is bad. I knew, and she said, it is all right. This is bad. I thought the double cheeseburger or the double cheeseburger pizza was good. She thought it was bad. That's subjective. Objective, as an example, is we look at the Nazis in World War II. And what they thought they were doing by exterminating the Jewish race, they thought they were doing something that was right. Their society thought it was right. And objective says, we say it's wrong, even if they won World War II and brainwashed everybody to everybody that they did not kill to think that what they did is right, objective say, says it's still wrong, even if the entire world thought that it was right. Objective, it's independent of human opinion. So when we talk about objective moral values and duties, we're, we're arguing for, for values and duties that are, in, that are universal, that, are, that transcend human opinion. Now, objective moral values require God. Why think that humans have moral worth if God doesn't exist? With naturalism, moral values don't, don't exist because science is morally neutral. Values are just illusions. Darwin said this in The Descent of Man. If men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, there can be no doubt our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. See, on a naturalistic framework, moral values are just byproducts of social and biological evolution. Objective moral duties require God. Traditionally, moral duties were thought to have come from the Ten Commandments. But according to atheists, humans are just animals, and animals have no moral obligations. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills a zebra 
but it doesn't murder it. If you watch lions and how, how lion prides work, a lion will come in, it'll fight with a lion that already has a pride, and if it wins, it goes in and it slaughters all of the cubs, so that way he can start his lineage through that pride. If we're just animals, why do we see, in that case, it's not murder, because that's animals. But to us, that would seem wrong among humans unless we're animals. If there is no moral lawgiver, then there is no objective moral laws that we must obey. There's no authority. For instance, if I'm driving out here on Bradley or Broadway here, and I get pulled over by a police officer, I, I have to pull over. He has the authority. I have to pull over. But if, say, Aaron comes up behind me and tells me to pull over, I don't have to pull over. He doesn't have authority over me to pull me over. Without a moral lawgiver, where is our, where is our anchor for morality? The moral argument for the existence of God is not saying that you have to believe in God for there to be objective moral values and duties. It's saying the existence of God himself, has, he has to exist for there to be objective moral values. An atheist can live just as good of a moral life as Christians. That does not deny the fact that there is objective moral values and duties. There's, there's a dilemma. It's called the Euthyphro Dilemma. And Euthyphro was a character that, uh, from Plato's dialogues. And the dilemma went this way. Does God will something to be good just because he wills it to be good? Or on the other side, on the other horn of the dilemma, does he say something's good because that thing in itself is good? But from the moral argument, both there, we actually have a third option. God says something's good because he in himself and his very nature is good. See, if we say God just says something's good because it's good independent of God, then that goes against premise one. Premise one is saying that objective moral values and duties are dependent on God existing. But if something by itself is good, it's independent of God. So the third option is that God in his very nature is good. And the Ten Commandments are an expression of his goodness. There's what is called atheistic moral Platonism. That moral values simply exist on their own. Plato thought of what he called the good. Like the self-existent idea. That they just existed on their own. But it doesn't make sense to just say justice exists on its own. Or that mercy and goodness exist on their own. Because if we were just blind, if we blindly went through the process of evolution, how do we know we get attached to one moral value and not another if they're just these abstract, self-existing ideas? If you really start to think about it, it doesn't make sense. Then there's stubborn humanism. Humanism is the idea that humans are the ultimate good. It's the view that man is the measure of all things. When humanism, man takes the place as God, as the anchor of moral values. So whatever contributes to human flourishing is what is good. The problem with this, though, is why think that our flourishing as humans is any better than an ant or an insect if there's no God and all we are are animals? That was premise one. Premise two. 
Objective moral values and duties do exist. We have what we call the moral experience. Philosophers say we can rely on our moral experience just as much as our physical senses. Both senses are infallible, but we can rely on them. Or they're not infallible, but we can rely on them. Actions like rape, torture, murder are not just socially unacceptable, they're abominations. All you have to do is start asking questions. Like, I, like James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Start asking a lot of questions, especially if you're talking with a moral relativist who believes in subjective moral values. Ask him, what do you think about the Crusades? What do you think about the Spanish Inquisitions? What do you think about Catholic priests sexually abusing boys and the church covering it up? If you start to ask them about religious atrocities, then they start to really see that, yes, there are objective moral values and duties. See, in the end, humanism and atheism is a, is a stubborn faith. Some people say that moral values just attach themselves to us as we go through evolution. This is what's called the genetic fallacy. And what that does is it tries to disprove an argument by showing where that belief originated. It's like I'm going to the Honda dealership, and I'm at the Honda dealership, and the salesman tells me, this car gets really good gas mileage. So I take it out. I'm driving it for a week, and I find out it does get good gas mileage. So I I find out a week later that the salesman actually did not know that it got good sales mileage. She was just selling me on that. Does that take away the truth that the car gets good gas mileage? It doesn't. Now, if any of you remember the big three, if you've been paying attention to the news, you'll hear about Crimea, Russia, and the Ukraine. This meeting happened in Crimea in 1945. It was Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin. A year before this, in 1944, Stalin removed thousands of people from their homes. 46% which perished, which starved to death. Millions of his own people starved to death. If moral values are subjective, then who's to say what he did was wrong? I've got a a video here. Let me turn it back here. I've got a video here. It's it's of Dr. William Lane Craig, who's a Christian apologist and philosopher, and he's talking with a, a moral relativist. And on the other side is Ravi Zacharias, and they're dialoguing about this idea of subjective moral values. The, first, the guy that's talking first is the moral relativist. you believe that you have some set of objective moral values, uh, I would say, well, how do, how, why should I believe that you have them? I mean, how are you going to know? Well, you're going to have to do the same thing as anybody else who has relative moral values to try to show why your values are better and right and they work correctly and, and they have this, uh, all of those things. You'll have to go, you can't tell the difference between absolute objective values and relative ones. It's just a you, fact. You don't think that you can tell that we ought to love a child rather than torture and sexually abuse a child? I, I think that's a good idea, to, to, to love a child. I think it's a good idea. It arises from our biological heritage. It's uh, natural and normal for us. Uh, but one and, isn't morally different no, from the other? No, I, I, I think it's that, that they're morally different. It's, it's bad to, to inflict harm. That's why I criticize God in the book of Job. Is he's, he has inflicted 
uh, unmerited, undeserved suffering on totally innocent people. And you think and that's wrong himself. of God? I think that's wrong of God. On what basis do you make that value judgment? I think it's bad to inflict suffering and, and a harm on other people. Why? What do, you, what do you mean, why? I mean, why is that wrong on a naturalistic worldview? The, the Nazis thought it was all right to do that to so they to did. Jews. They did, and that's because morals are created by societies. And, and, uh, and that society created the, the, a system that made those people see with such hatred. And, yeah. and we, we, have, we have many differences in moral opinions. In, in, uh, some On the one hand, you want to make value judgments, like God was wrong to do this right. to Job. Uh, slavery was abhorrent. We have improved morally over this other culture. Right. The Nazis were wrong. Right. And yet, on the other hand, out of the other side of your mouth, you're affirming moral relativism. You right. have no transcendent anchor for these values, and hence, you're lost in a sea of sociocultural relativism. You were, you were correct in everything you said until you said I was lost. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> we... That's we, why we invited you. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> that was Ravi Zacharias at the end. Okay. So that's the moral argument for the existence of God. Let's take a breath. Second argument. This one gets even more technical. This is the cosmological argument for the existence of God. We talk about cosmology, we're just talking about the origin of the universe. We're talking about the future of the universe, what will happen with the universe. There's two different arguments in the cosmological argument. There's one that's called the Klon cosmological argument. It comes from the name of a medieval Islamic scholar. Now, the Christian church originally developed a, cosmolog a form of a cosmological argument to argue against Aristotle's idea of an eternal universe, that the universe has always existed. But then it was later formulated by Al-Ghazali, his name's in here, and then, then refined by Thomas Aquinas in the Middle, Middle Ages. So this is the Kalan cosmological argument. And it goes like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause, Premise two, the universe began to exist. And premise three, therefore, the universe has a cause. See, Thomas Aquinas, he, he, uh, he proved the existence, he tried to prove the existence of God through motion, through an unmoved mover. If you've ever heard of that term, the unmoved mover. And he talks about the first cause. So he says, you can't have an infinite regress. Motion can't just be infinitely through the past. There had to be a first cause or an unmoved mover. Now, I got in a, a discussion with a guy in my deep philosophical thought. I thought of a name to name him so that way I wouldn't use his name. And I came up with Nemo. So Nemo and I were going through the cosmological argument. You have to be careful and you have to really define your terms. He said, how do you know that everything that exists has a cause? No, what I said was everything that begins to exist has a cause. God did not begin to exist. He's always existed. He's eternal. And then he started kind of going off on a tangent. He talked about, well, maybe chance caused the universe. 
If you have a good understanding of all the different arguments, you can already start thinking where you can go. When you talked about chance, I started going to the teleological and the fine-tuning argument. What these arguments are doing is they're just giving you a framework. Chances of you just going up to somebody on the street and being like, okay, premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, these are more the formal arguments for the existence. They're, they're a framework. They, they give you something to work off of, a basis. But it doesn't mean you can't switch from the moral argument over the teleological, back to the cosmological, or even pulling one premise out of each. These are just formal frameworks for the existence of God. So the first premise, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Something cannot be non-being in coming to being on its own. It can't cause its own existence. Even atheists will agree with this in the scientific lab. When they do experiments, something just doesn't pop up. I mean, when I'm sitting at the office and I'm working on my computer, I would love for a double cheeseburger pizza to pop up in front of me out of nothing. But it doesn't happen. Even atheists would agree with this. Premise two, the universe began to exist. There's philosophical arguments as well as scientific arguments. The philosophical arguments is you can't have an actually infinite uh, uh, number of things in the past. Mathematicians talk about potential infinities and actual infinities. You can't have an actual infinity number of things in the past. The scientific arguments come, you talk, you hear about the expansion of the universe. In the 1920s, there was a standard Big Bang model, which a lot of science, when that came out, there was a huge breakthrough, and a lot of scientists weren't willing to accept it because it started to go against their idea that the universe is not eternal, is not eternal and there was actually a beginning. The standard Big Bang model says that at a certain point in time, the, the universe was create, came into being. There's also the second law of thermodynamics, which says everything started at a low entropy. Everything started in order, and things are, start, are becoming more and more in disorder. If the second law of thermodynamics, which is true, which it's a law, then to say that the universe always existed, why didn't we, why, according to the second law of thermodynamics, at a certain point in the future, there's going to be a heat death. All the stars are going to burn up. Life will not be able to exist. If the universe has always existed, why didn't that happen before we're here today? Some skeptics like to ask the question, who caused God? That's what we call a category fallacy. It's like saying, who caused God, who is uncaused? Who caused the first cause? It's like saying, what does the color red smell like? It's a category fallacy. I have a video here by John Lennox. He's a Christian apologist who taught, who emphasize his, his main expertise is science, debating guys like Richard Dawkins. And in this video, he's talking about Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And in it, Richard Dawkins asks that question, who caused God? He's got a thick Irish accent. So when he talks about Richard Dawkins, I, I kind of had a good background because he's got a thick Irish accent. One of the central arguments of the God delusion, Richard Dawkins' book, is the famous schoolboy argument. If we believe in a creator, we'll have to ask who created 
the Creator. Now, the first point I would make about that is this. If you ask the question, who created God? You are thinking of created gods. Now, the ancient world knew all about created gods. Actually, we call them idols. And people don't believe in them usually nowadays. So if Richard Dawkins really thinks that what he's demolishing is belief in created gods, then good for him. But he could have written a far shorter book because millions of us don't need any convincing that created gods are a delusion. So that's the first point. And I believe it's quite a serious point, actually, because if he thinks that the God means you must be able to say who created God, then he does fall foul of that criticism. Now, you can only ask the question, coming at it from another perspective, if you cannot conceive of an eternal God. Christianity, of course, does not believe in a created God. It believes in God who is eternal and is the creator of everything else. In other words, God is uncreated. So what I'm claiming to use mathematical language is that the category of the uncreated is not empty. Now, it could be that Richard Dawkins has difficulty with the notion of the uncreated. Although, and I'd like to know the answer to this, I don't know the answer to this, does he believe that matter and energy have existed forever? Because if he does, as many people do who are atheists, then they do believe in something eternal. So the problem must be that they can believe in something eternal, but they don't believe in an eternal person, an eternal God. But where's the logical difficulty if you admit that something eternal admits, exists, then postulating that an eternal person exists? On the other hand, if they believe that matter and energy are finite, we can ask them their own question, who created that? And who created whatever created that? And so on. You have an infinite regress unless you can see that the buck must stop somewhere. And of course, the Christian doctrine is that God existed eternally, so that by definition, the, the creation buck, so to speak, stops there. So I really think that in a way, the game is given away by asking that question. Dawkins is thinking of created gods, which are a delusion. Somebody is asking questions about, a lot of questions about science, it seemed, last, uh, last Wednesday night, about literal days, seven literal days. He wrote a book called Seven Days That Divided the World, uh, John Lennox. So if you guys are interested... Um, He's, he also wrote a book, Has Science Buried God? God's Undertaker. That's the first argument of the cosmological argument. There's another argument. There's several arguments, actually, to the cosmological. I'm giving you two of the simpler versions of it. This one comes from Leibniz. It's called the Leibniz Cosmological Argument. It's from a guy, Gottfried Leibniz. And he asked the question... Why is there something rather than nothing? There has to be an explanation. There has to be a sufficient reason why everything exists. This argument goes this way. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either by the necessity of its own nature or by an external cause. I'm going to take through each one because there's actually five here, so I'm going to explain these. 
What he's talking about when he talks about the necessity of its own nature, he's talking about necessary beings. He's, he's distinguishing between necessary beings and contingent beings. So when he talks about necessity of its own nature, he's talking about a necessary being, a being that has to exi- exist. It's impossible for him not to exist. Some philosophers talk about math, mathematics, numbers, as being necessary. We look at God as being a necessary being. Contingent beings are caused by external causes, human beings, planets, animals. Those would be contingent beings. So the explanation of existence is either by, the, by necessary beings, by their own nature, or an external cause. The second premise, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, then its explanation is God. When you look at this premise first, it seems like a bold assertion. It's saying right off the bat that the explanation is God. But atheists actually agree with this. Because atheists will say God doesn't exist, therefore there's not an explanation. So they're arguing for the logically equivalent argument. Premise three, the universe exists. That's obvious. That's self-evident. Premise four, therefore the universe has an explanation. And that's drawing from premises one and three. Like I said, I'm, I'm kind of taking you through. This is a lot. I'm not expecting you to have these memorized. Premise five, therefore the universe has an explanation and that explanation is God. Like I said, this just gives you a framework to work off of. Some people like to combine the Leibniz cosmological argument with the... Yes? Any questions? Anybody asleep? It's a lot, I know. I start with the moral argument because that one is a lot, you see it every day. You see things like the Sandy Hook Elementary School, 27 children killed, and you feel a tug in your heart, so that really hits home. The cosmological argument, and with these arguments as well, you've got to know who you're talking with. If you're talking with somebody who's a, who's a scientific-type guy, he thinks very uh, logically, the cosmological argument is probably going to be a better argument. But if you're talking with somebody who talks about love and tolerance, and how could somebody do something, chances are you're probably going to want to use like a, the moral argument. So it depends on who you're talking with. I can't really give you an, this is how you apply it every day. It, it depends on who you're talking with. So no questions yet? The Leibniz is the most difficult one of the cosmologicals. Okay. I actually, we actually have more time. Yes. Because they argue for the opposite of that. They they say the universe doesn't have an explanation. God doesn't exist, so the universe doesn't have an explanation. It's it's logically equivalent. Because we're saying if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. But an atheist is saying that the universe doesn't have an explanation. Uh, it's It's not mute. 
you in, in that point you'd have you'd have to you'd have to draw that premise out. If if you're stuck on premise two, you'd have to bring up examples like, so you don't think the universe has an explanation? And they say yes. Okay. Let, let me let me give you an example. You come up with an example. A good example is let's say you're in China, and you, you're handing out Bibles, and you get arrested. And you're lined up in front of a firing squad, and you have a hundred trained marksmen standing in front of you who never miss. And you get you get the call, or you hear it, ready, aim, fire, and the shots all go off, and they all missed. And you're just standing there, and you're like, eh, I'm still alive. We don't need an explanation. That's look at a bigger picture. Look at the universe. No, the universe doesn't have, need an explanation. It just exists. It's kind of like going out on the beach, you're running, and you see a polar bear out on the beach. You're, you're, you're going to want an explanation, right? And there go- yes. Yes. And my slideshow just went to sleep. And this actually dovetails into the teleological. Okay, I'm trying to find where I'm at on here. Any other questions on the cosmological? This, the handout is like 13 pages long. Think of it as reference material. When you, get, when you get, say, a systematic theology book that's 800 pages, you don't go in and you read it from front to back. If you want to look up a certain, certain, certain topic, you go to that topic. You don't read it straight through. And that's kind of how this is. I'm, I'm really going through it quick because of time. I'm trying to explain three major arguments in an hour. Actually, 50 minutes, because I want to leave time for questions. Oh, and I'm going to, you know, you know when you're sitting in a class, and at the beginning of the class, you hate those dreaded words. There's going to be a quiz. Well, we're going to have a quiz bowl. So, and I've got chocolate, so we'll see who listened, and we'll see how much calories I have to take home. Okay, are we back on here? Okay. Now, we're going to get to the third argument, the teleological argument, or the fine-tuning. Plato said that there's two things that lead men to God. Of course, he was thinking of a different God, not the same God as the Bible. But he said there's two things that lead us to this higher being, the existence of the soul and the order of the universe. Aristotle was astounded by the order of the universe, by the skies and the, and the stars. Could you imagine living in that time where you didn't have lots of traffic, you didn't have noise and street lights, and you could just sit there and gaze at the skies? And that's what Aristotle did, and he was amazed. In his metaphysics, he argued that there must be a first uncaused cause, which is God, who's the source and the order of the universe. So the, there's this rebirth of design that there's this fine-tuning in the universe that shows that there's some type of design. Astronomers are stunned by how exact conditions had to have been for the standard Big Bang model to work. Just to give you an example of how, how improbable it is for a life-permitting universe, let me, let, me redef- let me define this real quick. Fine-tuning, we're talking about the constants of, of the universe, for instance, the laws of gravity, they're in such a narrow range that if those numbers are tweaked just a little bit, 
there would not be life in the universe. It would no longer be life-permitting. So this is the seconds of the seconds in the history of the universe, ten to the eighteenth power. The number of subatomic particles in the universe, ten to the eightieth power. Cosmologist Don Page says the odds of life permitting universe are one out of ten. It's actually ten billion to the hundred twenty fourth power. Just to show you how many zeros are behind that, I have it up on the screen. I thought some great examples of narrow, life-permitting. This is Camino del Rey in Spain. We taught, the fine-tuning is saying that everything, the constants are such a narrow range, if they fall just a little bit, there would no longer be life. And to me, that's pretty narrow. You fall just a little off, there's no longer life. Robert Jastrow, former leading NASA scientist, said, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Now, the fine-tuning argument. The fine-tuning of the universe is due either to physical necessity, chance, or design. There's, there's, it's, it's just, what it's doing is just giving you three options. If there's another option, I don't, I don't know about it. But this is just laying out the three options. So it's not really, people don't really argue about this. The fine-tuning is not due to either physical necessity or chance. That's premise two. I'll talk about that in a second. Therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to design. So under premise two, it it says that it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Physical necessity, what that says is that it's Physically, it would require us to say that a life-permitting universe is physically impossible. There has to be a life-permitting universe. But it does seem possible. When you look at the odds of a life-permitting universe, it seems much more probable that there would not be a life-permitting universe. It seems very improbable. To say that that there has to be a life-permitting universe is taking a radical line. When scientists look at how unlikely it is for a life-permitting universe. The more and more models, the more and more experiments they do, it keeps coming out that life cannot be permitted. So physical necessity seems very implausible. What about chance? It's just an accident that all constants and quantities fell into the life-permitting range. We just happen to luck out by chance but it's very unreasonable, but it's just by chance. Yes? Okay. Theory of everything is this idea that uh, they take ideas that's very theoretical. They look at how many 
they, they look at an infinite amount of universes and how many possible uh, scenarios there are of universes. And they say that in this infinite amount of universes, there's certain universes that are life-permitting because you're talking about infinite numbers of universes. So they give you all the possible scenarios and they just repeat those scenarios. And so it's very theoretical. There's actually no evidence for it. It's, just, it's all very theoretical. Uh, string theory is the same idea. That's, that's this idea of uh, you just start talking about multiverse, multi-universes that um, Stephen Hawking promoted kind of this idea where you had uh, a universe that would produce a baby universe. It would kind of just drop off a baby universe. So there's multiple universes. And Stephen Hawking's actually retracted his statements on that. And he says that it's possible that the universe did begin to exist and this is the only universe. It's very theoretical. I think I have, I thought I had some notes in it about it. The mini world hypothesis is actually what the current debate of fine tuning is, is, is been a debate about. And it's actually pretty much a backhanded compliment to the fine-tuning or the design hypothesis because scientists are out there making all these very theoretical claims of these possible universes. When you start to talk about theory of everything and all these different options, when they bring out the models, which I, I saw a debate with Sean Carroll and William Lane Craig, and Sean Carroll had uh, these models of it, and it just didn't make any sense. It, was really, it really seemed like they are trying to get this around this idea of design so it's just, it's just this idea of all these different possible universes, but scientists keep finding that all these possible universes cannot be life-permitting. I didn't want to get into detail about it because it gets pretty technical. There's also, atheists will use what we call lottery illustration to try to prove chance. And how the lottery illustration goes is this. You have a lottery which is very implausible. The chances of you winning are very slim. It's, I don't know, one out of however many billions. But somebody wins it. Somebody by chance wins it. And that's what atheists will use as an argument. And so they turn around and they try to, they try to make the fine-tuning argument look silly by saying, let's take it a step further, and that person that won who would believe in fine-tuning, says, well, I won it, so it must have been rigged. What they're trying to is they're trying to use that as an argument against the fine-tuning argument. So the person won it by chance, and then they turn, they turn around and they say it must have been rigged. That's atheist way of trying to disprove uh, the fine-tuning argument. But the problem with that is it's looking at it the wrong way. The fine-tuning argument is not arguing why a certain universe, a certain life-permitting universe exists, it's arguing why does a life-permitting universe exist at all? Why is there even one life-permitting universe? A more proper illustration would be this. If you're in prison, let's say in Russia, and they have a billion black balls, life-prohibiting, these are your life-prohibiting. If you get the black ones, you die. And then you have one white ball, and the, the white ball is life-permitting. The chances of you getting each one, they're just as improbable. But the chances of you getting the one white ball is very slim. That is a better representation of the fine-tuning argument. 
But when we look at the argument, it's even more improbable. Take five scenarios. You have billions and billions of black life-prohibiting balls and one white one, and you draw the white ball five times, life-permitting five times in a row. That's a better example of the fine-tuning argument. You will not really see the lottery illustration unless you actually watch some of the more formal debates. But I'm just putting it out there. Any other any question, other questions on that one? Uh, also, with the mini-world hypothesis, when I say scientists are kind of grabbing at straws, ones that don't want to uh, face the, the idea of a designer, is they'll start to string together a lot of hypotheses. And when you string them together and you mix multiple hypotheses together, the improbabilities become more and more. And there's a, there's a thing called Occam's Razor. And Occam's Razor says the hypothesis with the least amount of assumptions is the one you should always go with. And the fine-tuning argument has the least amount of assumptions. And premise three, therefore, is due to design. Any questions on that one? No questions. Any questions on the moral argument or the cosmological? Wouldn't it just be simple if someone tried to use the lottery argument just to go immediately back to the cosmological argument? Guys, who created the lottery? Who created these million, or where do these, now you have to explain a billion universes that went wrong. And I'll even accept that. You know, like fine, there's a billion that went wrong, but oh, yeah. where do they start? Yeah, there's, I mean, you can mix and match them. Like I was saying, this is just giving you a framework. So, yeah, exactly. You could go back to the cosmological. Uh, I mean, you can, you can mix and match. These are basically, they're like tools in a toolbox. And uh, in one scenario, you may use a wrench. In another one, you may use a screwdriver. You may use them together. It depends what you're doing. So, yeah, exactly. This may be a dumb question, but won't these universes, uh, if you consider life as one, what do you consider a non-life one? They, they, what they do is they do a lot of mathematical models where uh, they'll, they'll do different... Uh, it's, it's pretty technical. What they do is they just uh, change the constants of nature uh, to produce another universe in these models. That's why I say it's theoretical. Is they're, just, they're mathematical models. So they take our universe, they tweak the numbers a little bit, and they try to figure out how this universe would exist. And so they look at all the many possibilities. I think they actually have computers that will generate. Uh, so what they're doing is they're tweaking the fine-tuning. Yes, they're tweaking the fine-tuning to... Tr they're taking this... They're taking the universe mm -hmm. and tweak it. Yes. Okay. So by doing that, they're just proving more and more the fine-tuning argument. Yes. Because it's so fine-tuned. Right about. <laughs> yes. Like I said, I, uh, William, and Craig, William Lane Craig had a debate with Sean Carroll a couple weeks back, and it was pretty much Sean Carroll throwing up a bunch of models, and I'm just like... Whew. Just very theoretical graphs... Yeah, didn't make any sense. Did, did he end with, aren't you glad you're in the one that's designed? <laughs> no, no. He should have, though. Any other questions? I hit you with a fire hose of terms. And you can't put it into words? <laughs> yes.
I hit you with a fire hose tonight, and I was trying to take it very slow and try to stay a lot out of the a lot of the philosophical jargon, technical jargon. I didn't really want to talk much about infinite regress. If you if you're interested in actual infinity, potential infinity, look up Hilbert's Hotel. Hilbert's Hotel. That's a good that's a good uh, reading on the absurdity of an actual infinite amount of events. Yes. Well, I just want to say I've heard this like ten times, and I just understood something for the first time tonight. <laughs> She's tired of hearing me talk about it. The point of the the argument, the second point, is always you're trying to prove what's most logical, right? Through the entire argument. Yes. But but really, the second one is really the one where you're saying you're asserting that this is what's true, but you're actually saying this is what's most logical. Or is yeah, all yes. Each, each premise should be showing something that's more plausible than its negation or its opposite. So somebody I would give you a rebuttal on premise two would say something like, uh, well, yeah, it is due to physical necessity, and this is what it is. And so that's why I give examples of how you would... Uh, argue against the idea of physical necessity or, no, it's not chance. I was talking to actually somebody this week and we got in this whole thing and uh, he, he doesn't believe in God at all but he keeps saying it's reasonable not to believe in God. This is the most reasonable thing. And i like, you have no idea what you're saying because actually, according to all the arguments, the most reasonable thing is to believe in a creator. It's, it's, I'm trying to walk through this and it's just... It, it's funny when people just kind of go, what? <laughs> well, these, these uh, I've seen William Lane Craig use these, the same arguments for years, arguments back to the 80s and the 90s, and no, I've never seen a solid rebuttal against them. And I've seen on atheist blogs, I've seen, well, Craig's an idiot because he uses the same argument all the time. Exactly. It's solid. That's why he uses it constantly. There's a little bit of refining here and there. You'll see in his debates, you'll kind of refine them a little bit, state it a little bit different, but he always is using the same arguments. I wanted to say something. Just, you know, it's, creation is always proving, it's always proving the truth, no matter what. Because, you know, all the scientists right now that are following, they didn't believe in creation, but they study it, and then they, there's no other answer that they can go to. <laughs> You know, like when they, I don't know if you guys heard about the story where they went to, um, they got the vanilla, uh, was it the vanilla bean or something, and they wanted to grow it. So they went and got it somewhere else and took it somewhere else, but they realized it wasn't going to grow because it had to have the bees to pollinate it. So they took it out of its environment, it wouldn't grow. But that's what got that scientist saved, was because he figured out a creator had to create the bee to create it to be able to go and pollinate to that bean. So it's still always. They're, they're going to always come to the faith eventually yeah, well, <laughs> if they keep arguing, you know. A, a product of the Enlightenment was that we have this idea that science is opposed to faith. But when you look at guys like Isaac Newton, they studied science and the, in the universe because of their theology, because they wanted to know God more. So it's just that whole idea. And John Lennox, I keep mentioning his name, he's a good one to read about that, that idea of this false idea of science being opposed to faith. But you're right. When they find, I mean, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Anthony Flew. Uh, 
everybody debates whether or not he actually became a believer before he passed away. He was a major British atheist. And at the end of his life, he kind of moved over to a deist, a deist type person because he started seeing these arguments. Actually, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was one of the biggest arguments that he, uh, he looked at that, at the evidence of it. Uh, but yes, scientists, many scientists have come to faith through the... Through the Yes, we're going to be talking about the resurrection next week. I understand the idea behind chance and the ideas behind design, but physical necessity, what is that? That's just, that's just saying that it's, it's impossible not to have a life-permitting universe. Okay. It's, it's necessary for us to exist. It, it's, it's necessary for a life-permitting universe to exist. And see, that's very improbable. That's, that's taking kind of a radical line because when scientists build out all these models or the theories of everything all these, and they tweak the numbers. They keep coming back with universes where life is prohib- it's life prohibiting. The universe would not allow life. And so to say that it's physically necessary, it, we, when we start to look at the universe, it's very contingent. There's numbers, there's calculations. It's very contingent for life to exist. So to say that it's physically necessary is just taking a radical line. So that's probably the least likely of all the... Yes, chance, chance is going to be your most likely. When I was debate, when I was not debating, but when I was talking with Nemo, he used the idea of chance. The universe was created by chance. And what was nice is when I was using the first, the Kalam cosmological argument, I could just go off of the premises and you'd go off on tangents. But, but then, uh, basically at the end of the day, I got to the conclusion and he stopped talking to me. So, I don't know. But see, he, he had a good point, though. Really quick, we're running out of time. He said, Christians know how to argue in circles. They're good at circle argumentation, begging the question. I said, really, give me an example. God exists because the Bible says so. Yes, I agree 100%. That's circular reasoning. Now let me give you an argument, a valid argument. I gave him the cosmological argument, and he stopped talking to me. So, all right. Okay, we're out of time. I will do the quiz. Yeah, I'll do the quiz bowl next week. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time together. I know these concepts are really difficult, but they're just, it's, it's, these are, like I said, tools that are, that are good to use. Peter tells us to, to have a reason for, for our faith, to be able to give a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason. This, these are just giving us framework. They're, they're, human, they're created by humans to try to formulate and give us that evidence and the reason. Just thank you for all your many blessings. In your precious name, amen.